It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, what's up? Not much, Steve. What's going on with you? I was just thinking, this is the second first episode that we're doing. This is the first episode of our next 100 episodes. Two more years, Steve, to hit 200. Can we keep this up for two more years? I think we can. Should we? Whether or not anyone will... Should we? (laughs) There's been question whether or not we should have stayed doing it as long as we have. Well, I think we should based purely on today's guest. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Lex was with us for the first hundred. He's back for the second hundred. That's right. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex. Subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, as I mentioned, we've got a great guest today. So we're going to skip the usual emails and Twitter polls and get right to it. Bassist for the incredible Canadian band Coney Hatch. He's worked in the Rush organization and with Anthem Records for years as Rush's A&R rep. Currently working on a new project with Alex Lifeson and vocalist Maya Wynn called Envy of None. Andy Curran, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Boys, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys. Any any friend of the Rush family is a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, we like to get started with our guest, Andy, by asking them their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Okay, so I think I have a slight advantage on you guys being in New Jersey as a Toronto kid growing up in this city, just outside of the city. My pals were all listening to bands like Rush and April Wine and um, trying to think of some other ones that at the, at the time when I was, you know, a youngster, like in my teens, um, maybe Gatto was another Canadian band and Streetheart. And for me, it was all about bass. I had been given a bass guitar for my birthday by my sister's boyfriend. And so any kind of bass driven music that I could wrap my head around the minute I heard Rush, I was like, oh, my God, what what's going on here? And then, you know, as the, as I started getting into music and and discovering shows religiously, Maple Leaf Gardens, New Year's Eve, Rush, mm-hmm. I, I uh, it was strange because when I started working with the guys, you know, I, I'm a bit of a pack rat and my wife, much to her chagrin, but I saved a lot of my concert stubs over the years. And I probably have more Rush ticket stubs than any other band. And then when I started working for them, it was just off with them. Mm-hmm. And it just went off the radar, right? So anyway, saw them probably the highlight if you're asking me my early early days i was at one of the nights at massey hall when they recorded all the world's the stage wow and how old were you at that time i'm gonna say 16 or 17 maybe i had balcony seats i didn't have great seats but i remember max that was my first exposure to max webster and kim mitchell and that was a bit like like oh my god like what is this what am i watching you know that one was a bit like i loved it but it was very frank zappa ish and a much weirder than rush but kim's playing was amazing and i instantly found out that they were a favorite of rush's and it t- they took them all over the world touring with them so i was like well if rush loves them i gotta love them too these guys gotta be great so i started following max webster but that particular show um all the world's a stage at Massey Hall, 
I, I have some pretty fond memories. One is the white shag carpet that was on the stage. I was like, okay, <laughs> how freaking cool is this? These guys bring their own carpet, right? And then they had like the mylar around the drum riser, Anil's drum riser. I believe that's where they debuted 2112 and played maybe all of the record in its entirety or most of it. And I saved the actual little pamphlet that they gave you when you walked into Massey Hall. And it was just kind of like a handbill that you would fold out. And many, many years later, when I was working over at Anthem Records and in charge of the box set for 2112, everybody was like, well, what kind of cool stuff could we put in there? And I was like, well, what about the handbill that they gave you when you walked into Massey Hall? And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And I go, yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> right. I was like, what do you mean? What am I talking about? Do you want me to go br I'll bring it from my house? I've got it at my house, right? So we ended up, as everybody knows who bought the 2112 box set, we ended up putting a replica of that in there. And it basically, you know, was a tiny little program, I think, that listed some of the crew members and spoke about 2112, but a very, very vivid memory of that. And many years later, you know, because I was so into the band and playing bass, I was like, I got to buy myself a Rickenbacker. I have mm -hmm. to get a black 4001 <laughs> with a white pickguard. And, and, um, Took me many, many years to get it, boys. I, I couldn't find a black one. I, I ordered one from a store a couple of years later, and they said, oh, sorry, we don't have any black ones. We've got a burgundy one. So I bought a burgundy one, only to find out from Getty himself that the burgundy one was actually quite a bit more rare than the black one. Hmm. Um, stupidly sold it, but probably about four or five years ago, I traded and got myself a 4,001 black with a white pick card. So it took a while, but... <laughs> <laughs> you finally got it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I lost track of how many times I saw them at Maple Leaf Gardens. E easily a half a dozen, if not more. So what was your first album? Do you remember which one you bought first? Okay, so that's 2112 for sure. My my buddy across the road had the debut album with the exploding rush letters. And we, you know, I think one of the first bass lines that I ever learned was what you doing. You know, down, 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 and I just practice and practice and practice. And, um, but uh, I, I was familiar with that record, but 2112 was the one that that really hooked me as a Rush fan. I actually really like Caressa Steel, believe it or not. I know a lot of, I know it didn't do that great for the band and it was you know <laughs> what was that tour dub like the down down the tubes tour mm -hmm. or something they called it right but you know once i bought 2112 i think i went backwards and i think i got fly by night and caress of steel and ended up getting the first record as well so you were a newly minted rush fan when you saw them at massey hall oh that sealed the deal that that, that sealed the deal for me for sure yeah so obviously getty was a huge influence on your bass playing how did that progress to you forming Coney Hatch? Okay, so you're correct. Getty definitely was a, was a huge influence on, on the bass for, for me. When I started to pick up bass, full transparency, guys, I can't read music, never was able to do it. I, I learned all of my bass parts listening by ear. You know, I'd listen to a part and then I'd whistle it and then figure out on the neck and play it. And then I took some a few bass lessons from a Toronto guy lived in Streetsville and his name was Scott McLeod and Scott played in a local band called Swan and Swan was very much like, um, they never really had any record deals, but they were quite popular in the club circuit and he was a monster bass player and he encouraged me. He said, that's great that you like Getty Lee, 
but have you ever heard of Chris Squire from Yes? And mm-hmm. I said, nope. He said, you better go listen to him. Have you heard of Stanley Clark from Return to Forever? Nope. Go listen to him. Go listen to Jacko Pastores from Weather Report. So he, Scott opened my mind up to listen to a lot of different bases that influenced me. And one point that always kind of gets a little eyebrow when I talk to people about what influenced me on bass uh, and, and bassist. Kansas was another big one for me. I love the bass player in Kansas. But anyway, he said to me, you need to listen to a lot of funk and disco. And as, as a rocker, disco is a bad word. You don't go, you don't, you, you don't admit to anyone you're listening to any disco, but so I quietly went away and started listening to the Bee Gees and listening to Sly and the Family Stone and the Temptations and any kind of bass driven music that I could listen to, I got my hands on. So quietly started listening to a lot of, you know, uh, um, I believe in miracles and, you know, Rick James and and all that kind of stuff, just for the bass lines, because I yeah. loved them, right? But then, you know, fast forward to Coney Hatch, I was asked this in, a, in an interview recently, because when I got that bass given to me and, and was influenced by Getty, it was all sort of this, I'm a fan. I'm a music fan. I'm rap. I want to learn how to play bass, right? Wasn't until I saw Edgar Winter, uh, the Edgar Winter group at Maple Leaf Gardens with the opening act, a bad company, had floor seats. I remember this. I vividly remember seeing Edgar Winter and they were they were on the shock treatment tour, but they played Frankenstein and they had this giant mirror ball and chaos and the pot smoke everywhere. And, and I'm so Toronto kid, I'm at Maple Leaf Gardens. I'm watching the show and I'm like, that's it. That's it. I am getting in a band. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to be up on that stage one day. (laughs) You know, my parents kind of raised me as if you can see it in your head and you can envision yourself. I don't care if it's like that's the car that I want to drive. That's where I want to be with my career. If you can picture it and envision it and chase it and go after it, you will get it. And that was a life-changing moment for me. I was like, I am going to be in a rock band. I want to do what those guys are doing up there. <laughs> so, you know, for, formed Coney Hatch and lightning struck a million times for me and got pretty lucky. And so it wasn't so much the rush moment. It was more the Edgar Winter group that put me over the edge. And how does the band Coney Hatch get signed onto Anthem? How did that all come about? I know, right? Like that's like when I, you think about the trail that I've been on since I was like, you know, 19 years old and being a massive Rush fan and then ending up as the label mate, which was crazy. So, you know, this story I have, this is sort of not a new story, but I'll certainly share it with you guys. When Coney Hatch was starting to get very popular, you kind of had to go out of the city to earn your stripes. You couldn't just get a gig in, at a Toronto club. You had to be at a certain tier. You had to go prove yourself. The agents would have to know that you did good business outside of Toronto. And then you were like, okay, you're good enough to play on the Young Street Strip, where Russia actually cut their teeth, you know? Um, some of the clubs that they played in, most of them were gone by the time Coney Hatch played. But, you know, you can see photos of Rush at the Piccadilly Tube for instance, uh, which was a really cool club. And when you went in, it was designed like a actual subway station in London, England, right? So, and I saw a couple bands to the Piccadilly Tube and snuck in there. And the Gasworks was a big, big rock club in Toronto. And for anybody that doesn't know the Gasworks, they probably only know it from Mike Myers with Wayne's World, where they <laughs> went to the Gasworks. But it's actually one of the most iconic rock clubs in, or, or just music clubs in general in Toronto. So 
when we started to really get a bit of a, I guess, a, a bit of a steam behind us, we would go into the gasworks for week-long stints. And we were playing a combination of cover tunes, half the night of cover tunes and half the night of original stuff. And when I look back, I'm like, wow, we had a pretty crappy, not very focused selection of cover tunes because we were playing <laughs> Rolling Stones. We were playing Eddie and the Hot Rods, the Monks. <laughs> um uh, scorpions, lots of ACDC. If it was popular on the radio, we'd be like, ah, I guess, I guess we should play a Tom Petty breakdown. You know, we should, let's put that in our set. Right. But we would slide in original material and just not tell anybody. We would just never announce it. We just, cause if you told a club owner, you're going to play original material, he'd be like, not a chance. You guys got to play all the stuff that's popular right now. So the, the, what led us to the Anthem records stable was one night a guy was sitting in the gasworks. I'm going to say it was it was maybe like a Monday or Tuesday night. It wasn't very full, and I see this guy writing in in this pad that he had. So I immediately assumed it was a journalist who was doing some kind of a story on us, and and that never happened to a band of our stature at that point. So I was like, oh my god, I'm going to go introduce myself. Maybe this guy's from the Toronto Star or something, or maybe he's from some big newspaper. So I go over in between sets and sit down. I introduce myself and I said, I'm Andy, the bass player from Coney Hatch. Um, do you work for one of the lo local newspapers? And he said, no, my name is Pi Dubois. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if you know who I am, but uh, I was and I stopped him dead in his tracks. I was like, absolutely. I know who you are. Let's rewind back to Massey Hall and me, you know, <laughs> knowing and he said and I said, well, what the heck are you doing here? And what are you writing? He said, I'm actually working on lyrics. I said, wait a sec. So we're blasting your head off at maximum volume and you're writing lyrics for a song. He goes, yeah. He said, but you know what? I, I really think Kim Mitchell would dig you guys. Kim had just broken up Max Webster and he said, Kim's looking to sink his teeth into a project. And he's spoken to me about producing. I'm going to invite Kim down to see you guys. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe that that was happening. So sure enough, a couple of nights later, Pi brings Kim down. Kim sees us. He said, I love you guys. I'm going to take you into the studio. Let's do some demos and I'll take you under my wing and mentor you and, and let's go shop a deal for you. And, you know, at, you're 19 years old and, and you're hearing terms like that. I'm like, what is shopping a deal? And he's like, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to help you guys find a record deal. So we went in the studio. My dearly departed dad loaned us 2,500 bucks. We signed a promissory note to my dad, Brian Kern, with, with promises to pay him back. And I think maybe Kim might have even just only taken 500 bucks of that. The rest was studio time. And we cut five songs with him. And when we were done, he said, um, I'm going to go take this to Dean Cameron, who's the A&R guy at, um, at EMI Records, EMI Capital. And in the 11th hour, he said, you know what, I should I'll probably play it for Ray Daniels, too. Let's see if we can get a bit of, of a bidding war happening. Ray's still a friend, even though I, I just broke up Max Webster. He's not that happy with me right now. But I'm, <laughs> And so, um, so that's what happened. And we literally had a bidding war between the, two, between the two labels. And full transparency, we were thinking, okay, wait a sec. If we sign with Anthem Records, we get Ray Daniels as a manager. It's yeah. like a, like a one-stop shopping here, right? So the decision... As much as we could have signed with a major label, we would have been without a manager. We had a manager at that time. It was very small. They just had mostly cover bands. So we rolled the dice and went with Ray. And 
I'm going to tell you guys, man, within months, our lives changed. Like we were literally went from the clubs to recording a full record with Kim and then having calls with Ray, like, I just got you the Judas Priest tour, North American Judas wow. Priest tour. How does that sound? It's like, wow. So you're you're in bed with the big fish at that point. It wasn't like I booked you a, a boatload more of club dates. It changed like that. And I, we were we were lucky, man. We just honestly met Kim at the right time, at the right place. A lot of my peers were in amazing bands that never got any kind of breaks whatsoever. And I just can, you know, they, they talk about being in the music industry and how timing and luck is part of it. Well, I'm a living example of that, how, how multiple times lightning has struck and not killed me, actually helped me. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like in those early days, being so young and being, you know, so close and so in with the Rush family and being such a huge fan? Yeah. Uh, well. Listen, like I, I've, I said at the beginning of the interview, and still to this day, the core of the guy you're talking to right now is a music fan. If you told me I'm not going to play any more shows or ever record again, so what? I'd still be buying records and listening to music and trying to discover new bands and you know, playing the crap out of all my old CDs and vinyl that my wife says, you really listen to this stuff? And I go, yes, I do. I still <laughs> listen to it, right? And so it was a real pinch me is this happening right i'm i'm like half the bands we toured with i i'm going to be really honest with you and tell you i had posters of them on my bedroom wall to play with ted nugent and cheap trick and peter frampton and edgar winter and rush and i'm just like how the hell did this happen to me right and i remember vividly the first time going to the sro management offices for a meeting with ray and mr getty lee is walking out the building as I'm walking in and I'm like, Oh my God, I got my head down. Oh my God, here comes <laughs> Getty Lee. Here he comes. Oh my God. I better not look at him. What's going on. You know, just like completely starstruck. And he goes, um, Hey, and we were in the office. He was walking out. I was walking. He goes, Hey, are you, are you the guy from Coney Hatch, uh, Andy? And I go, yeah. He goes, I hear you play tennis. And I go, yeah. He goes, you want to play next week? <laughs> Hell yeah. Like, and, 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 you know, to take it the next step, I remember being on the tennis court going, okay, this is just bizarre. <laughs> Getty, Getty Lee's just about to serve to me right now. He's serving a tennis ball with, uh, over to me, right? Like what the, in what world does this happen? Right. You know, and right. I played a lot of tennis as a kid and my dad was ranked in England as a young tennis player. So tennis and hockey were a big part of my life. So most of my relationships that I have with musicians are, are usually around sporting events. I, I became buddies with Getty because of tennis, um, mm. Alex Lyson because of golf, um, Steve Harris from Iron Maiden when we brought our tennis rackets on the road and he found out that came into our dressing room and said, which one of you guys is the tennis player? So it's amazing how much uh, business you can get done on, on the golf course and, and with a captive right. audience. Right. But that's how the friendship started with, uh, with Getty and I was over, was playing tennis. So that first game, I have to ask this, did you let him win? <laughs> Listen, I, I honestly can't remember, but I remember thinking, you know, Curran, you better, you better be, you know, show your a game here. The guy's never going to invite you again. I would say if, you know, that's a long time ago. <laughs> he he might have won because his style is very different from mine. He's very annoying. He's very steady. 
He doesn't take a lot of chances. He's just like, okay, I'm going to get it back to you. And then he waits. He he plays the waiting game. He waits for you to make the mistake. And I can be fairly aggressive trying to pull winners. It, I would, you know, I'll probably say he, he won, but we definitely are, are quite evenly matched. Same with Steve Harris. I beat Steve Harris the first time and he was not happy. <laughs> so has Steve Harris ever played Getty? Get them together? You know what? As a matter of fact, Steve Harris, myself, Getty, and Alex played doubles. Wow. When, when Iron Maiden came into town and <laughs> he knew that I was working with the guys in Russian, you know, he was like, can you get a, get a doubles game going? And I said, yeah, what do you think about, why don't I ask Getty <laughs> and Alex out? And he's like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. So that's where Steve Harris met Getty now. That's amazing. So how does it progress to you working with the band later in your career? Okay, so there's a, there's a little stopgap in between there. So Coney Hatch breaks up in... 85, 86, I'm going to say. And then I put my own band together. I originally wanted to call it Soho 69. It was sort of a, a knock on Phil Linnett's solo in Soho because I'm a big Thin Lizzy fan. Um, I forgot to mention a huge influence as a bassist singer, much like Getty. That's that's kind of, you know, the same cut from the same cloth. That always baffled me how, how Getty could play those intricate bass lines and sing at the same time for anybody who plays bass or an instrument, you know, to carve your brain in half there. It's one thing to play a Coney Hatch song with eight notes or a, or the boys are back in town, but when you're playing Cygnus X1 or, or some crazy song like Ged plays and to be able to sing is just off the map, right? So anyway, the stopgap before I get to Anthem was my solo record. I got nominated for two Juno Awards and won one of them. And that's quite a big honor here in Canada. It's similar to a Grammy Award and had a boatload of airplay with the record that had no tattoos and license to love on it. And at that time, Ray Daniels was not my manager, but we were still very, fr- uh, to this day, I remain quite close with Ray. I would consider himself one, consider him one of my best friends. And he called me out of the blue and he said, hey, um, congratulations on the radio success. And we were getting a lot of much music success. No, nothing in the States, all in Canada. Maybe three top 10 hits in Canada off that record. He said, "Are you? would you be available for to play some shows opening up for Rush? And I was like, what that <laughs> you know we had been we had been dangled that carrot with coney hatch and it never happened coney hatch never opened for rush but mm. many years later so i'm talking 92 ish ray called me up and i was like when and where and let's go like let's giddy up on this right so we did um probably about five dates on the roll the bones tour with rush as the opening act that's where the friendship started to even get more solidified being out on the road with those guys. And I'll never forget showing up at Cops Coliseum in Hamilton and walking into the dressing room and there's a bottle of champagne with a note from Getty, Alex and Neil. Welcome to the tour, Andy. Congrats on your success. It just tells you how classy these guys are. Everything they did. I've never met three more perfect gentlemen than those three guys. And, and although we knew each other, that I just thought, okay, what a classy move. The road crew gave us carte blanche, whatever we wanted. We had long sound checks. Um, unlike a lot of other tours that, that I had, the Rush guys just rolled out the red carpet. So that chapter passes. I'm still very friendly with Getty. I put together a band called Caramel, and I did that independently. And a bidding war happened. We, we released it independently, and we had a bidding war. And all of a sudden, I had an offer from Geffen Records for a worldwide deal. 
So that was the first time for me as a, as a solo artist that I had any kind of a deal of that magnitude put in front of me. And I immediately panicked and I called up Getty and I said, I need some help, buddy. I need a serious music attorney. He said, oh, okay, well, one of my best buddies is Peter Paterno. He's in LA. I'm going to give you Peter's number and Peter will get you the best deal in the world. Uh, oh, by the way, can you send me that record? That's that's so cool. So, you know, and I would exchange music with Getty. And so Getty helped line up the legal attorney, the music attorney to help me ink that deal with Geffen. So I released Caramel. Sadly, the, the honeymoon was kind of over before, like we had a top 10 hit with a song called Lucy at Rock Radio. I'm not even lying, maybe like 200 plus radio stations, even more playing it in the States and off to a really good start. We, we were playing shows with Creed and Brother Kane and Stabbing Westward and bands like that. And anyway, so that chapter ended quickly when Geffen got bought, basically gobbled up in Universal and the deal was over. The honeymoon was gone. So I've often been accused of being a rock and roll cockroach. When you step on me, I go away <laughs> and I crawl back underneath the floorboard and I come out with another project. So um, that sounds like a song title on its way. Rock and roll. Cockroach. Yeah. Rock and roll cockroach. Thank you. I, I might do that. Right. But any, so anyway, I, I, I self-funded another record. I went in and recorded a bunch of tracks under the name of Leisure World. And my friends in Buffalo, New York at a company called Could Be Wild helped get another record deal for me with a label called Artist Direct. And again, we uh, we started to really pop out of Boston. There's a song called I'm Dead, and we were top 10 in Boston with WAAF, and they invited us in to play with um, Limp Biscuit and a couple other different bands of that nature. And we started really popping at radio, and Godsmack invited us out to be their opening act. So we immediately accepted it. We called the label and said, hey, we got great news for you. Just as the single's popping, we have been invited out to do the entire North American Godsmack tour. How much tour support can we get? Can you guys help us? And they said, not only do we have no tour support for you, we're actually folding the label. And I was oh. like, oh, my God, not again, like twice in a row within, you know, six years. Mm -hmm. So they said to me, we're going to give you the, the record back. We're going to give you the rights to the record back because we feel horrible. So I picked up the phone and I called Ray Daniels. I said, Ray, you got to help me out, buddy. I said, I know you know everybody. Help me. Just call Val Azoli at, at Atlantic Records. And Val had worked with Rush. And I said, just tell him he can have the record for nothing. We don't want any advance. We just need tour support. We don't want to lose this god smack tour so he goes leave it with me andy i'm going to call him he calls me the next day he said i have good news and bad news for you the bad news is valazoli does not want the record you are like the girl that dated everybody else and and nobody wants you like atlantic feels that if they had signed you you know you're just somebody else's girlfriend now nobody's going to take you right so val can't help you out but i can help you out and i said oh okay cool what are you talking about he goes it's time for you to hang up the base, buddy. Come on over, work with me. I'll give you the A&R title. We could use some help with the label. You can work with Rush. You can work with uh, the Tea Party, a couple other bands that we have. And maybe it's time for you to get off the road. You got two young daughters. Come on over and let's talk about this. So I sat down with him and, and uh, he offered me a great deal to you know, still be in a creative position. He made me promise that I wouldn't 
go out on the road with Coney Hatch mm -hmm. or, and just dedicate myself to that job. So I agreed to, and just as I was walking out the room, he said, Oh, by the way, I also have one other little, you know, asterisk on this. I'm going to groom you to be a manager. And I said, not a chance in hell, buddy. No way. <laughs> I, I, had, I, I said, I have two kids of my own and I am not into babysitting grown adults. I said, I've been in the music industry for, it's not like I'm a young spring chicken here management is a full commitment and he goes no 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 andy i'm going to groom you to be a manager and don't you worry when if you work with me you can work with any act in the world and just trust me trust me so i took the job and i want to point out to you guys that he said to me it's time for you to get off the road and spend some time with your family I never spent so much time on the road than I did when I joined SRO. And I remember saying to him, like, wait a second, what happened here? Like, I'm, I said, now I've got like all these elite cards that I can go into the lounge. He goes, yeah, isn't that great? You get free crackers and beer at the Air Canada lounge, right? And I was like, no, you promised me I would be home. I would be hanging out with my kids. And, you know, so part of, so that job with SRO and, and Anthem was an interesting one because my first title was A&R. So I would help bands, their vision to start a record and bring it to fruition with Rush. They really didn't need an A&R guy. It was, it was really, you know, for the first couple of records and feedback is a perfect example where, you know, I was so intimidated. I was like, oh my God, I'm I'm going to go in and start working with Rush as their A&R guy. What the hell am I going to offer to this picture? These guys have sold millions of records. Like who's little old me to tell them how to make a record. And so I just went in and said, okay, what studio do you want to go to? Who's the producer? What can I do to help? And they were like, okay, we're going to use David Leonard. We already want to use him. We're going to go to phase one in Toronto and do us a favor. I think, you know, a bunch of guys that have vintage gear. We need a boatload of vintage gear because we're doing all these old vintage cover tunes. Right. And um, from what I was told, it was quite an honor that they bestowed on me because when they started tracking, they called the office and they said, can you send Andy down to the studio? So Peggy Ciccone came in and she said to me, Getty and Alex and Neil want you over at the studio. And I go, oh, okay, cool. And I just start packing up. She goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're the only A&R guy they've ever invited to the studio. And mm. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, so that's cool. And I remember walking by Neil on the floor when he was warming up and his drums were so freaking loud and powerful that it the only thing that I can tell you guys that was close to the experience would be walking next to a muscle car with the hood open, like a, you know, like an old Mustang or a Barracuda with it chugging like that. And the air was coming off and in the power, and I was like, Oh my God, this guy's a monster drummer. I'm literally walking by him in the room. Right. So that chapter, you know, being an a &R guy for them really sort of came to a highlight for me when I had the subsequent meetings for Snakes and Arrows and the Clockwork Angels record where the boys said, hey, we want to have a meeting with you and it, we want to talk about producers. And it was specifically for the Snakes record. And they said, um, we have a list of people that we'd like you to reach out to. So I grabbed my little pan. I'm, I'm a big fan of writing stuff down. I don't do it on the laptop. So I got my little notepad and I go, okay, cool. Hit me. Who do you want me to call? Uh, John Paul Jones. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll call John Paul Jones. That's, you know, that's cool. Let me try to get Brian Eno. Okay. Um, you know, uh, 
Bob Rock, and, and the list goes on and on. So they give me this like A-list, Daniel Lanois. And I'm like, okay, this is really a really cool eclectic list. You know, I'm going to reach out to these people, introduce myself as the A&R guy, Russia making a new record. Would you guys like to hear it? Blah, blah, blah. So I, so I didn't get to speak to John Paul Jones or Brian Eno, but I spoke to their managers. I do have a funny story to tell you about Brian Eno, a manager, which I'll, which I'll mention to you. But in that meeting, I just closed up my book. I said, okay, great. I'll go call these guys. They're like, no, 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 not so fast. You're not going anywhere. Who do you think we should talk to? So A, now let's go back to Massey Hall. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a second. How did, how did this happen where now the boys in Rush are literally asking me who I think that they should work with, right? Yeah. I'm one of these guys that really prepares himself. I had been preparing myself for this moment, hoping maybe one day the guys in Rush might ask me my opinion on something. So I better have my shit together. Right. And I had networked with a bunch of producer managers, a bunch of producers, friends would send me their reels. I'm representing this producer. Here's this mixing engineer. Can I send you his reel? Can you give it to the guys in Rush? So in my office, I had a CD case that was filled with different producers, mixers, engineers, you name it. They either hit me up personally or their managers did. And I would listen to them and I would make notes. So I said, actually, there is a few guys that that have really impressed me. And I mentioned Nick Raskulinich as one of them, uh, Adam Casper, who had just done some great work with Queens of the Stone Age. And the boys in Rush, it's not as easy as just saying that. Then they go, okay, oh, that's interesting. Why? Why do you like Nick Raskulinich? What is it about him that we should spend some time listening to you and why we should even be interested in, in talking to Nick Raskulinich. And I said, well, I'm going to play, not only has he worked with the Foo Fighters, he's no slouch, he's won a Grammy Award. His vocal sounds are amazing. And Getty goes, oh, his vocal sounds are mm-hmm. amazing. Okay, all right, I'll listen to that, right? So <laughs> so anyway, um, they ended up choosing Nick. And that's a, and it's a fascinating story that I could tell you about Nick, but I wanted to just go back to Eno, Brian Eno, and tell you that I called his manager and I said, um, you know, I, I'm working and representing Rush on this and I want to know whether Brian would be interested in producing the record. And his, his um, manager was a very proper British woman. And she said, ah, well, the first mistake is Brian is not a producer. And I said, oh, oh, oh. Okay. I'm, no, no, he's not a producer. He's a sonic landscaper. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know why, boys, but I, but I had I had this I had this image of um, Brian Eno pulling up in like a, a, a like a gardening van that said Brian Eno, sonic landscaper, right? <laughs> And so I said, oh, okay, well, I'll be sure and tell Getty, Alex, and Neil that he's not a producer. He's a sonic landscaper. I said, could you describe to me why that is? How is that different from a producer? Ah, okay. Well, he comes in at the beginning of the project, and he sets the table. He gives some ideas, and then he goes away, and he lets the lads get on with it. And then at the end... He comes back and he sculpts it and he and he sculpts the landscape of it. So he's if you're looking for someone who's there 24-7 in the studio, that's not Brian. And of course, when I brought that news back to the boys, they said, no, that's that's not the type of 
producer we're looking for. Right. Um, but the but the Nick Raskulinich story was Andy. Before you start talking about Nick, yep. I don't know if a lot of Rush fans realize this, but you are absolutely one hundred percent responsible for two of Rush's greatest albums, then Snakes and Arrows and Clockwork Angels, because those two albums are just among all of Rush albums, they are among the best. So, uh, well, thank you for saying that. I'm an, and I'm extremely proud of the work that Rush did under my watch because I I do think that in a very small way of connecting, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not responsible for the music in any way, shape or form, but connecting the dots to put the team together. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of Nick, I, you know, with all due respect to all of those other names on the list, I did say to the guys, I said, guys, I really feel that an injection of youth at this time in your career would be really, really cool. If we have somebody, because Nick's younger than all of us, he's younger than me. I just said, I've met this guy. I've spoken to him on the phone. He's full of piss and vinegar. He's got a million ideas. He knows your band inside out. This guy can recite back to you pieces of your records and tell you at what time in that song that Neil did such and such a fill or Getty played that riff or Alex played this guitar thing. I said, this dude knows his rush stuff he is and and they said to me oh is he a super fan and i said he probably is but he's a hell of a producer and an engineer too and i i just said it might be a breath of fresh air because a lot of these names that you're talking about these guys have made a lot of records and i just feel that the injection of youth at this time might be a really welcome addition to what you're doing and i think that helped them sort of go yeah fly nick down so um, you know, Nick had said a bunch of very, let's just say, adventurous things. I'm going to do this when I get there, and I'm going to tell Getty this, and I'm going to tell Alex and Neil this. And I was like, okay, well, I said, it's a lot different, Nick, you telling me that you're going to do all these things, and then I get on the call with them and go, okay, Nick said he's going to do this, this, and this. <laughs> I said, it would probably resonate much more if they heard that straight from you. You know what he said to me? Put me on a plane, motherfucker. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, we've seen the videos. There's that one video that I've seen where he is kind of arguing with Neil about this drum part. And you could tell Neil's a little unhappy, maybe, because he's probably been playing drums all day long. <laughs> but Nick is like, Nick is not backing down. Nick has no. this idea, and he at least wants the band to try it, right? Which yeah. is something I, I, I think the band probably really appreciated. Well, and I think you're right, you know, um, Jerry, in terms of, I think part of the DNA of a good producer is, yes, you have to be able to capture the moment, but you also have to be able a good salesman and you also have to be a good people person and be able to sell your idea and sell your concept. And Nick rode those guys hard. He was relentless. And I thought, okay, good, good on you, dude, because it takes a big personality and somebody with big kahunas to go in and tell, tell Neil Peart how to orchestrate a drum take. I mean, give me a break. Like I don't, I would never sign up for that job. Not in a heartbeat, man. <laughs> That's way too intimidating. But Nick had a vision. I think they respected him that he took that on. 
and he had the goods to back it up. You know, he had the, he had a Grammy Award with the Foo Fighters and lots of other really great records that he was involved in. So it wasn't just some kid, some slouch coming in, right? And he immediately bonded with those guys when he said, "Put me on the plane." I picked him up at the airport. I could tell there was some nervous energy. And I said, dude, I wish you the best of luck. I'm rooting for you quietly. I love your work. I drove him up to Getty's place and I opened the door and I said, there you go. There's his house. Call me if you need me. And I watched him walk <laughs> down the driveway <laughs> and I thought, poor guy, man, he's there's a lead. You're leading the lamb into the slaughter, right? The, right. the lions are waiting for him because, um, you know, what Ray Daniels told me when I, when I took the job, he said, I have to tell you, Andy, when you're talking to the boys in Rush and specifically Rush and Stephen Page from, you know, ex bare naked ladies, these guys, you cannot pull the wool over their eyes. These are seasoned veterans. Do not try to just slough off any of your comments. You, you need to pick your words carefully. You need to go in prepared. They are going to test you. They're going to ask you questions about it. It is not to be taken lightly having conversations with these artists. The guys in Tea Party, they love you. You could probably, you know, roll over a few things. They'd be like, okay, dude, yeah, that sounds good. You know, when, and, but he said that the Rush boys will, will test you. And that's what they did with Nick. And they put him on the hot seat and that boy earned his place to produce those records. He, he I, I wasn't at that meeting, but I'm sure it was a good one. And I know the boys in, in, in the band were extremely proud of those two records. And I, and I had numerous conversations with Neil talking about clockwork angels that 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 was one of his all-time favorite records might he might be the most proud of that record on anything they've done and i know it's cliche a lot of artists say oh my newest record is the best the other old stuff isn't any good but when when a guy like neil peart said you know clockwork angels might be one of my favorite records that's a pretty high accolades for nick raskulinich but um you know, the road part of the job, I'll, I'll, I'll digress over to the side and tell you that I had my A&R hat on. And the minute those bands would finish their records, then with Rush, they would say, OK, Andy, we'd like you to come out to pre-production. Or, you know, I'd go out to New York City to meet um, with Atlantic Records, or we'd be meeting the guys at Sirius XM, or I'd be helping them with Guitar Hero and Rock Band, or they'd say, Andy, we're going to start a live record in, you know, Texas or something like that and all those live records so that I would sort of take off the A&R hat and the management hat would go on and then I'd, I'd find myself on the road for you know sometimes months and that Clockwork Angels record was was a perfect example where they asked me to come to LA and I was supposed to be there for a week and they said oh by the way can you call your wife and tell her you're not going to come home for a while we'd like you to stick around and we really appreciate you being here and there's lots to, lots of work to be done we've got so much we want to talk to you about so a week trip in Los Angeles turned into a month and a half so I curse Ray Daniels to this day um, <laughs> I I'm, I earned a lot of air miles but listen I never looked I, not that I was pissed off or angry about those, but the promise that I wouldn't travel was definitely not lived up to on his end. <laughs> I got to tell you, Clockwork Angels, we've said this before to numerous people on this podcast, but Clockwork Angels is a masterpiece. Uh, from any band, it's a masterpiece. From a band like Rush, after their career, after all of the fantastic albums, to have an album of that quality as their last album 
in, in my mind is unheard of and unparalleled. Yeah, I have to admit, man, like when I started hearing that early material and songs like Headlong Flight and The Garden, I mean, there were points in The Garden when they were recording that. And when David Campbell came in and cut those string arrangements, there was not a dry eye in the control room. Like I'm talking about, you know, five grown men basically with tears in their eyes because the track is turning out so well, you know. Um, some awesome, awesome memories of that record for sure. Yeah. And you said earlier that you were invited into the studio on the feedback tour. And, you know, from the stories that we've heard, especially after 2112, when the band felt like they had like earned their ability to escape the management, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we'll do what we want. Why were you invited into the the studio? Like the only kind of management person to come down there. (laughs) Um, honestly, I, I, I'm going to chalk it up to this, that I'm a musician first, you know, so I, yes, I was, a, you know, I could be called a record company weasel. I'm, I'm, I, I, seg- <laughs> I segued over into the dark side, but I'm cut from the same cloth as those guys and, and full transparency. There was lots of times, lots of times where there was stuff that was going down and I would give those guys a heads up going boys, this is just about to come down. You're going to hear about this. And I think it stinks. This is not cool. And, and my barometer was if something was pitched to me and, it, and, and it, if it was my band and it felt wrong, then I'm going to tell that to the boys. And that was always my, I don't, I don't care whether it was anything, any pitch that came in for the band to do a number of things. If I was like, well, I wouldn't have done that with Coney Hatch. Why would I, why would I try to sell the boys in Russia? Mm. So I think they knew that I had their back. I think my, my instincts and my barometer, we, I, I, I became very protective of them. And that was learned through Ray and Peggy to protect our artists and, and not drag them through the battlefield. So those years working on on the other side of the desk, I, I learned so much from Ray and Peggy, and that was be to be very protective of, of of your artist and make sure that nothing funky goes down. And I I really think that the camaraderie that I I was able to form with the boys in Rush, whether it be through playing sports with them or Neil and I were just complete hockey goofs. We would compl- always talk about hockey and and the original six and you know, that one project that Neil and I did together where TSN pitched him to do a big band version of the Hockey Night in Canada theme. And Neil was the boss, that whole project. It was amazing to to travel and see him out of his rush element and to be able to call all the shots and to bring his friends in to be part of the orchestra. And um, Neil was a producer on that. And, and I remember him turning to me saying, this, this might be one of the best things that ever happened to me. I was like, wait a second, let's talk about moving pictures for a sec here. <laughs> Right. Okay. You know, I love it, Neil, that, you know, that we're, that you're doing a hockey song, but let's, you know, there's some pretty, pretty pivotal things here in your career. Right. But you're like, do you know you're in rush? Yeah. Right. (laughs) But you know, the personal side of that was, and, and maybe rush fans already know this story, but here's a guy who grew up in St. Catharines was never really sports minded 
And when you grew up in Canada, hockey is in your DNA. There's jocks everywhere. If you don't play hockey, you're an idiot, right? And so, and you're an outcast. And, and so when Neil's drum kit went into the Hockey Hall of Fame, the drum kit that he played on, he turned to me and he said, this is a giant FU, middle finger to all of the kids that used to harass me for not playing hockey. And look at me now. Right. Look at, I, my, my drums are in the Hockey Hall of Fame. My drumsticks, his parents were there. It was like, he loved it, right? So, you know, to answer your question, yes, I think the bond was a musician, but we had some real common ground that we that we bonded over. And, and, you know, whether it was sports or hockey or, you know, our sense of humor, I think that really helped. And I guess I kind of got, you know, there's that movie with uh, Meet the Fockers where there's that circle and, and you're the dot outside the circle. I guess at mm -hmm. some point I got moved from the dot outside the circle into the circle. So that common ground you have with Rush has led you to what you're working on now with, with Alex Lifeson. Can you tell us about this project and how it came about? Yeah, I t again, you know, the friendship with Alex, if I can peel back a few layers, there was a point when I was working at, um, at the management company at the label, and I tipped my hat to Ray on this. He said, listen, I know you've got a super solid relationship with Getty. I know you guys are like, you're, you're super tight. You and Neil have bonded over the hockey thing. And, and you know, I, I watch you guys talk and you're a bunch of idiots. And, and Ray's a big hockey fan, but he would sort of just say, I can't believe the stuff that you and Neil are talking about. But he <laughs> said, I think it's time to work on the Alex relationship. And I said, I'm, I'm fine with Alex. What do you mean? And he said, no, no. He said, we've got this project coming out. And if you guys remember, there was a, there was a project called Replay. And it was a reissue where... I actually, again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proud that they, they wanted to remix a bunch of stuff. And they said to me, Andy, do you have any suggestions of guys that, that we should get to remix this stuff? And I said, and it was a DVD. And I said, guys, I know it's completely different music, but I just bought ACDC's Castle Donington live DVD and Mike Fraser mixed the crap out of this thing. It is one of the best sounding music DVDs I've ever heard in my life. He crushed it. And he's a good Canadian guy. He's out in Vancouver. And they said, oh, okay, we'll get us that. We want to listen to it. And because we were kind of dealing with apples versus apples, this wasn't a record. This was a remix of a DVD. They all loved it. They had some conversations with Mike. And, you know, the boys in Russia were very respectful to each other and, and sort of Neil... If you guys know, I don't probably telling you stuff you, you don't already know, but Neil was obviously very involved with Hugh Syme, uh, mm -hmm. with all of the, uh, the artwork and, and the graphics and stuff like that. Alex was, you know, always in, very, very involved with the mixing and engineers and mastering and stuff like that. And Getty was hugely responsible for all of the stuff that he did with his brother, Alan, and, and the presentation of the tours and the visuals and, you know, very front center. And so they just respectfully let each other kind of just coexist in those little silos, right? So Alex was flying out to mix the replay stuff with Mike Fraser and Ray said, I want you to go out there and spend some time with Alex. That's where the two of us really, really bonded. And we spent a week together going out for, for dinner and spending a lot of time 
at the warehouse at Brian Adams studio, mixing those records with Mike Fraser. And we started talking about a lot of music. What do you listen to? What do you like? I know you were in, in bands. Um, what kind of basses do you play? What, and I don't think a lot of Rush fans know this, but Alex's tastes in music are quite eclectic. Like we were talking about EDM stuff and electronica and soundtracks and, and, guys like Danny Elfman and Mark Mothersbrough, who wrote all the music for Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Pee-wee's Playhouse and, and our love of music in movies and soundtracks. And we really hit it off there. So at one point, Alex came to me when the band was still very active and said, I've got a lot of instrumental music that is not Rush music. It's, it's, it's tailor-made for film and television. Can you help me scratch that itch? Can you introduce me to some people? And I said, yeah, let's, let's do this. This could be fun, man. Like I think, you know, I know some people in LA and so we took some meetings and I, I brought some stuff that Alex was working on at, on his home studio and brought it to people. Like uh, one of my a cool meeting that I had was with the son of Randy Newman. Um, I think his name is Amos Newman and he's, he's at William Morris Agency and he's in charge of a lot of the film and, and film supervisors and music sync. So I really started to help Alex try to cultivate that because it was something that he was really interested in. There was Rush and then there was this whole thing where I think it would be a lot of fun to write music for film and television. And um, he said to me, didn't I hear you say that you've written music for film and television? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I have. I've, and I've got pretty lucky with TSN here in Canada, which is our version of ESPN. We've got about a 25 year career of writing theme music for mostly hockey stuff, but, you know, a couple other shows called The Reporters, which is guys talk sitting around talking heads, talking about what happened to that week in sports and just had a lot of fun doing it. And, and Alex and I spoke about how it's very liberating to write music for film and television because you're not writing an intro and a chorus and you're trying to consolidate things into a four minute or a three minute song. You're just looking at, at visuals and writing to it. And that was something that Alex really, really wanted to do. So to answer your question, I know I'm really dragging on here. The Envy of None project was kind of born during COVID. Alex called me and said, Hey, I've got a couple songs I want to send over to you. I've got guide bass on them. I'm not really happy with them. Would you mind playing some bass on them for me? So let's go back to Massey Hall again. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? Like, I never crossed the line with those guys. I never said, hey, guys, you should write music with me. Hey, well, you know, wouldn't it be fun if we put a band together? I just, no, right. that's, that's a no-fly zone. I didn't right. do that with any of the artists. They were well aware that, you know, I still played music. I had a recording studio at home. Keep in mind, Ray Daniels was like, while you're working with me, you're not going out on the road. And I said, yeah, okay, no problem. <laughs> Turned down a lot of shows. So with Alex, I jokingly said, well, why are you asking me? Don't you know any other bass players? <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure in your Rolodex, there's a guy whose initials are GL, right? Like, why don't you go, go ask him, right? He's And he was like, no, man, like, eh, I don't know, like, you know, I just think this would, come on, man, do it. It was like a favor. It was like a buddy asking another buddy for a favor, right? So I'm pinching myself. I hang up the phone. I'm going, oh my, I can't freaking believe that Alex Lifeson from Rush has just asked me to play bass on his songs. What is going on here? Why do I deserve this? I'm just like, so I'm, I'm busy. And, and he gave me some direction too. So 
I think what sealed the deal was I, I gave him two base takes. I said, here's exactly what you gave me that you said you wanted me to do. But there's a second base take in there where I tried some stuff. And he called me back the next day and he's like, dude, the changes that you did, I would have never even thought about them. Like, I can't believe you selected, you know, I'm making this up. I can't so believe that you played a D over that chord and the song, the song just went completely somewhere else. Those two songs are the ones that are up on alexlifeson.com right now. So that's Kabul Blues mm -hmm. and Spy House that I played bass on. So that kind of opened the door to this conversation about what are you working on? Well, I'm working on this. What are you working on? So I told him about Maya Wynn and I told him how I had met this really, what I said to him, this girl is gifted, man. She is a diamond in the rough. I'm telling you, this girl's got a long career. Her vocal arrangements, she's just the sweetest little girl in the world. She's like 24 years old and don't even ask me how I'm writing music with her. It's just too long of a story, but but that's what I'm working on right now. I said, can I hear some of it? So I said, yeah, absolutely. So I sent him over a couple of songs that Maya and I had worked on. And they were just really working, sending stuff to Portland, Oregon and my home studio. And he said, wow, this is really cool, man. It's really cool. I said, are you, I, I'm not a guitar player. I'm a pretty crappy guitar player. Would you mind replacing what I played? Or do you hear any other stuff? And he goes, I'd love to. So as I said to a couple of people, one song turned into two, turned into three, turned into we got to about six songs and he goes, dude, this stuff is sounding awesome. Like what, what are we going to do with this? And it, it, there was never a plan. It was never like, let's write an album. Let's go out and get a record deal. Let's put a band together. It was literally four people writing together, myself, Maya, Alex, a friend of mine, um, Alf Annabellini, who's a multi-instrumentalist and he's, and he's a mixer engineer. And it was just like, if you can picture four friends sharing music, sending it to him with no plan whatsoever. So Alex comes up with this bright idea one day. He goes, this stuff's too good, man. We should do something with this. What, what do you think we should do? And it sounds very soundtracky at time. And I said, well, I said, I know some, as you know, I know some film and music supervisors and television sync people. Do you think I should send it out to them? And this, at this point, we only had four or five songs. He goes, yeah, why don't you? Just don't tell them not to share it and let's see what they say. No word of a lie, guys. The very first person that I sent music to, she emailed me back. She's a film supervisor in Vancouver, BC, called me back. And, I, and she said, this song, Liar, is perfect for a, a series that I'm working on with Netflix. It's called Tiny Pretty Things. I want it. Can I do a license with you on this? It's non-exclusive. It's not like you can't use it for something else. And so I called everybody up and I said, listen, it's not a lot of money, but we kind of have some bragging rights here. If we're going to start telling a story about this, case in point, I guess maybe we're not all drinking the Kool-Aid here. Somebody else actually <laughs> likes it. Right. Somebody likes this music. They like it enough that it's going to go into a Netflix series. So sure enough, went in there. We used that. It kind of fueled some more inspiration. We went from six songs to seven. So now we have 10. Two of the 10 songs are Kabul Blues and Spy House that Maya has sang over. So they're completely different versions than what, really? what people are hearing on alexlifeson.com right now, right? So once Alex and I started kind of talking about this, specifically Alex, people saying, what new music are you working on? He's like, because he's he's... 
honestly, it, it went from this thing where we were just all having fun to Alex going, this is too good. We need to, this music needs to be out there and people need to hear it. And that's it, full stop. We haven't spoken about playing live anywhere or putting going on tour. And, and so now he said, well, we've got some great friends at some labels. We should share it with them. So we've started to very slowly share the music with a few labels and publishers who are expressing some real strong interest. Even if we put this out independently, this music's going to come out. It'll, it'll come out this year sometime. We think that it deserves to have a label behind it to give it the shot and give it the most amount of visibility. But it, it's a side project. Could I compare it to Victor? Probably not, because I think, Alex, that was a different headspace. That was a very contrived is the wrong word, but it's that was I, that was pre my time. But Alex put together a band and and said, we're going to do this. This thing just happened organically out of people sharing music. We we haven't really thought it out about what we're going to do or anything like that. Maya is really excited about the notion of maybe going on the road. And Alex and I keep saying, you know, you don't want some old guys in your van. Go out and get some, <laughs> go go out and get some people your own age and 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 tour this stuff, right? But it's honestly, I know this will sound really corny, guys, but I don't have to tell you that both Getty and Alex have gone through an extremely tough chapter. And if all this does is accomplish that it got Alex back playing and into a creative place, then as my friend, I'm happy. Mission accomplished. Check mark. Alex is playing guitar again. He's feeling creative. And as a Rush fan and his pal, I think it's great that he's playing music again. And there's zero expectations on this. We don't, we are, we're not trying to take over the world. We're having fun, but we're proud of it. So I hope it sees the light of day. We've got lots of different discussions going on right now and people being very encouraging and telling us that we need to get this stuff out there. So I guess we'll see what happens. And jokingly, I, we are the envy of none at this point. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's, let's see if we become the envy of a lot of people after it's out. I don't know. So who came up with the name, Andy? It's, that sounds like it has Alex written all over it. You know, I, I know it does, but it actually, it, David Steinberg, who is the band's attorney, um, Dave, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but David is a very accomplished drummer. He played in a punk rock band in Toronto called The Mods. He eventually left The Mods and played with Stib Baders and the Dead Boys. Um, and then he kind of packed in being a live musician. He did a couple of solo records as David Quinton. And he packed it in. And, and much like when I sort of left the touring world and joined Ray, David went to law school, but never stopped playing drums. So we recruited David to play drums on a couple tracks for Envy of None. And we told him that we we actually had a working title of the name of, of Middle of Nowhere because everybody was in the middle of nowhere. That was the working title of the project in the band. And we quickly found out that there was about four other bands called Middle of Nowhere. <laughs> and and I've been plagued with those problems. I've had so many name issues with, with cease and desist notices from my stupid bands over the past. But David said, well, I've, ha I've had this name for a while and, and it actually is taken from, I think, Guys, don't hold me to this, but David found something that might have even been from a, a scripture in the Bible or some literary thing where this quote was about, we are the envy of none. And we went, mm -hmm. oh my God, that's such an awesome name. So David Steinberg 
David Steinberg Quinton is responsible for naming this project. So Andy, did you learn anything working with Alex on this project that you didn't know after working with him for so many years? Did you learn anything new about Alex working on this? Well, you know, I think again, I was lucky enough to see the boys in action in the studio creating those records, but never to this extent where I, I really learned the attention to detail that Alex puts into everything. It's amazing how hands-on and kid gloves he is with this stuff, because he would say to me things like, I would constantly say, like, he would be like, okay, it's time to work on another song. So I would send him a riff that I've been working on. And he would be like, you know, that riff that you sent me, the bass is really super dominant in 250 hertz. Like you need to go off and do cut a new bass track and, and cut it because it's just really, it's overwhelming there. And I don't know how we're going to make that read in the track. And so his attention to detail about sculpting things. And he said, Andy, a lot of these ideas you're sending me are very, very dense. We should really go in and kind of, you know, mute some stuff and because we, we really want everything to read and there's so many great intricate parts. So I'm seeing this side of Alex that is very meticulous in sculpting the sounds and in placement of tones and frequencies. And he's really zoning in on Maya Wynn's harmonies. Like we've left her to do like that girl needs no coaching. He's just like, I cannot believe the harmonies he's, she's coming up with. And Alex is quite articulate when it comes to that stuff saying, you know, she's doing this inversion over that. And, and then the other thing I've learned certainly from him that I didn't realize, like he would send me some stuff and I'd be like, did you put any guitars at all on this? This all sounds like, <laughs> like keyboards and special effects. Like what the hell did you put on this thing? It sounds awesome. And he's like, yeah, I took the acoustic guitar and I flipped it around and turned it backwards. And I, so he's a mad scientist, this guy. That's what I've learned about Alex. It's not like I'm going to plug in a distorted guitar and just hammer away. He is spending so much time and TLC on these sounds and when I start to listen to the Envy of Nun stuff, I go, oh, that's that sound from Clockwork Angels, or that's mm. that tone from Snakes and Arrows. That's, oh, that's how we did that one, right? But he's really quite the mad scientist is the best, is the best <laughs> thing I can tell you. Like, And then when I'm privy to hearing stems that he sends to Alf to mix, and I'll, and I'll solo an acoustic guitar part and go, oh, my God. How how did we get so lucky to have him play this beautiful, you know, orchestration of an acoustic guitar part that has four or five beautiful melodies running through? I, I'm really just having so much more respect for the musician in in this guy and and, and what what he, you know, because you you think about the big personalities that Neil and Getty are and they're playing and somebody said to me recently, it might even have been David Steinberg said, you know, you think about the who and you think about Keith Moon and John Entwistle and, and the level of playing. And then you listen to those guys playing, you go, how, as a guitar player, Pete Townsend, how do I fit in? So mm -hmm. you're in a band with Getty and, 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 and Neil Peart. How do you fit in and compete with those two monster players and personalities? And a lot of Rush fans say Alex is the guy that glued it all together, you know, with his tones and his sculpting of sounds. And I think he's really, I don't know, maybe not appreciated to the level that he should be 
um, in terms of the role he played with Rush. And, I, and I'm seeing it firsthand now as he sends guitar parts that don't even sound like guitar for Envy of None. And just really maybe, you know, underappreciated might be the best word or just overshadowed by such great musicians as Getty and Alex. And, and man, that guy's like, I just have a new appreciation of, of what he brought to Rush and as the third guy that glued it all together. Yeah, the one thing that I've always loved about his playing is the fact that he he never did go for like the the wanky solos. Do you know what I mean? He never he never went all out in that kind of you know here are my technical chops kind yeah. of thing. It was always just like here's the song, and then in comes Alex. <laughs> yes, in comes Alex in the song. It's just like oh my god, where is it coming from? That's what I always wondered. Yeah, and for any musicians listening out there, you know, sometimes your natural instinct is to show off. Oh, yeah. I'm going to write a bass part. Listen to me. Or here's my chance now to solo and just blow a million notes, right? And I don't know how many conversations I've had with Alex about serving the song. It's so important. Any good producer will tell you that. Check your ego at the door. Serve the song. This is all about the song. What is it? What are you going to do to make it better? And um, and I've had so many conversations with him, especially on Envy and None, where he'll say, oh, this part serves the song so well. And, um, you know, that with the other three members, if Alex says something isn't feeling right, we're listening loud and clear. This guy's got, he's got so much more experience than all of us. He's given us the freedom to really express ourselves. And, and there's very little that he's asked us to change. But the minute Alex says this part's not feeling right, we're like, okay, what does it need? So we're really looking at him as the, uh, I mean, this respectfully, as the elder statesman on it. He's got far more experience. And I've told him that many times. He's like, is that okay? That email that I sent, I hope I didn't offend anybody. I go, you're freaking Alex Lyson, dude. <laughs> Come on, man. What do you mean? Is it okay? Of course it's right. okay. And, and all, and you know, the, the knucklehead rocker in me goes, are you going to put some heavy guitars on it? He's like, no. (laughs) Are you going to peel over the outro? No. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, I know Rush fans all over the world are so excited to hear this music, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about it and talk about your work with Rush over the years. Steve, it's been a, it's been a pleasure and saying, Jerry, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited about it. And, um, You know, the last thing I'll say is it's been, I've been watching like a fly on the wall with Alex putting up alexlifeson.com and then the, even just launching the videos to help the, the, the Epiphone guitar and just seeing the love that's pouring back from the Rush fans who have like myself and like you guys have been starved for music from that camp and just seeing a glimmer of hope going, Oh my God, Alex Lifeson is, is doing something now. And I, I'm with all of you. I'm like secretly, oh God, I can't wait till he and Ged get back in the room together and have told those boys, like, I'm here to help whatever you want. And, and you know, this chapter with Envy of None is, is I view as a stopgap and I can't wait for Ged and Al to get together. And I know I can tell you boys and everybody that's listening, they're best friends. They talk all the time. My fingers are crossed that new music's coming out from those guys. If I was a betting man, I would say yes. And and I'm waiting for I'm waiting for that day when those two guys do some music together too, because um because I miss it for sure. Well, when the Envy of None album comes out, I hope you'll come back to talk to us about it. That'd be great. 
Absolutely. I'm being a little bit secret. Like I know I've told you a lot. I'm being obviously a little bit secretive about what's going on, but we're all, we're all really proud of it. And when you got a guy like Alex kicking you in the butt going, we got to get this stuff out there. That's, that's some pretty heavy incentive and endorsement. You know, it's not just us thinking that we got some cool tracks. You got um, one of the, you got a rock and roll hall of famer giving you a shot in the arm going, let's get this out there. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm proud of it and I can't wait for it to see the light of day. And uh, been an absolute pleasure boys being on and, and thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Andy. Have a great day. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So Jared, that conversation was incredible. It was, he is, he is a rock on tour. Definitely can tell a good story. And so much stuff about rush. I didn't know so many things about Andy. I didn't know. And he's just been interwoven in the rush landscape forever. I know. And the fact that he always, he always went back to that show at Massey Hall. He always went back. His mind always goes back to being that kid. Yeah. Seeing his favorite band. Everything that happened to him, he thought, how is it possible that I was at that show at Massey Hall and this is happening? Right. And now this is happening. And now this is happening. It's, it's incredible. He kind of never lost that wonder that, that fan wonder that we all have even after he became friends with the guys and worked for them it was always a part of him was like he never failed to appreciate the position that he found himself in and the thing that you pointed out i think is the key thing they didn't have any of their a and r reps be that close to them ever until andy yeah and they welcomed him in with open arms and that says everything about the kind of person andy is absolutely and i'm so pissed at myself because I forgot to ask him the one question that I wanted to ask him. Which was what? Who is Envy of Nun's Sonic Landscaper? <laughs> right? Yeah, we, for, we forgot who's, who's trimming those sonic hedges. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have to have him back because we have to find out. That's right. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Andy Curran at therushcast at gmail.com. Bass intro and outro was Lex. He's masterful. And Jerry, I hope you have a great quote to wrap this up. I do. It's from a little song called Neurotica. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Life is a diamond. You turn into dust. Looking for trust, and I know that you just don't get it. Well, you just don't get it. I really don't. <laughs> Either do I. Take it easy. See you.